I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. On a voyage across the United States at 58 and somewhere between Maine and California, John Steinbeck wrote, What good is the warmth of summer without the cold of winter to give it sweetness? And although it's not winter yet, the burning heat of summer has started to wane as August finally creeps to a close. And as temperatures cool, there's nowhere I'd rather be than the sweet pastures of my allotment. If you need your memory jogged on what to do, vegetable gardener to the stars, Anna Greenland will be filling us in on the job she's getting started on now ahead of autumn. And if you've got a golden field of sweet corn, but are unsure of when to harvest it, don't fret. I'll be talking you through what to spot to make sure you reap a delicious bucketful. But if what you want right now is some reassurance that gardening will remain accessible to you in the coming months as the purse strings draw ever tighter, then stick around as we'll be chatting with journalist and horticulturist Alice Fowler for some priceless tips and tricks. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. The blazing heat of summer is no time to be labouring outdoors, but now that our cloudy British skies are starting to shift back into place, I think it's time to be getting back to work. And the expert that'll be kicking us into gear comes with some whopping credentials. She's grown food for some of the greatest Michelin star chefs out there, including Raymond Blanc and Tom Akins. Let's head to her small holding to hear more. So my name's Anna Greenland. I'm an organic vegetable grower and gardener, and I've worked mainly for chefs my whole career. I'm now in Suffolk, setting up a small market garden there, and where I'm going to be growing for the local community and also running some courses and classes in Grow Your Own. So where we are in Suffolk, this is the first time that I've had some serious space to actually play with. In the past, I've grown in very small sort of town gardens and that was brilliant and I loved it. But this is a whole new sort of adventure, really. So under cultivation is probably a bit less than quarter of an acre. Yeah, that's a little bit of context and it's a beautiful spot. There's actually a hill for Suffolk, which is unusual. It's normally so flat and there's some lovely wildflower all around. And yeah, it's a beautiful place to be. There's skylarks, which is obviously quite magical. Here are some of the jobs that I'm going to be getting on with in the coming weeks. So now's the time of year that you should really keep a quite vigilant eye out for blight. Um, and here are some of the things that you can do to ward it off and to keep an eye out for it. So keeping a check out for blight, you would be looking for 
sort of brown lesions that are starting to form on the stem, on the leaves, this sort of circular brown discoloration. And once you start to spot those, it's very quick actually to take over and the leaf tissue starts to die back. And before you know it, everything will sort of start to go black and brown and your plants will quite quickly die, sadly. Yeah, you can slow it, but you can't once you've got it. That's it, really. There's not an awful lot that you can do to cure it. You can avoid blight to a degree by sort of good practice. So good airflow, you know, if you're growing in a greenhouse or in a polytunnel or an indoor space, then keeping the windows open, keeping it well ventilated. The worst thing on a hot sort of humid day is to have doors shut and the air kind of all festering inside. So good airflow, good spacing between plants. So if you're growing in pots, for example, don't cram all the pots together so that the leaves of the plants are all touching. So good spacing, not watering the leaves is another one, actually. So just watering to the root of the plant, into the pot directly or the soil, not watering maybe in the evening when everything's going to kind of sit there and fester overnight. Those are the main things I would say. Outside, you are more susceptible to it because the spores are kind of in the air, they're airborne. So if you have the opportunity to grow them indoors, then that is preferable. But gardeners have been growing tomatoes outside for many, many years and, you know, have had successful crops, so it shouldn't put you off. And if you do get it, then rest assured that most people in your area or, you know, the rest of the country will probably be getting it too, so you don't have to feel too alone about it. So this time of year is a good time to start thinking about sourcing some good quality strawberry plants. You could be putting up your runners of strawberries that you've already got. If you plant them sort of going into this time of year, into the autumn, early autumn, then they stand a really good chance of putting on good fruiting for next year. You can wait till the spring, but it's, it's good to get your plants sort of established this side of winter so that they fruit better the following year. Each strawberry plant will put out these long sort of stems and then a little tiny plant will start to root on the end of those stems. And you can either cut them all off, um, keep the bed clear and a little bit less congested. Or, you know, if they've taken root and you do want some more strawberry stock or if you've got friends who have got strawberries and you want free plants, you could ask them if you can put up some of their runners. And you just literally then cut the long stem that attaches to the parent plant and then you dig up the little rooted part from the soil and put it in some compost just into a sort of nine centimetre pot. Overwinter that inside somewhere sheltered and then you can plant that out sort of early next year, early spring next year, once it's sort of established a little bit more. So that's quite a nice job to be doing. So two of my favourite varieties, there's one called Malwina, which is just, I don't know why, but it just seems to have really superior flavour. It's just a lovely, big, red, juicy, flavourful strawberry. And then there's another one called Garaguette, which is a French variety, and that has a slightly more unusual kind of longer tapered fruit to it but again it's just got that really fragrant strawberry flavor and I, I know just from growing for chefs the garagettes are quite popular I grow some in the polytunnel and get a sort of an earlier crop they're just very very
very tasty. Alpine strawberries as well are lovely, the little kind of jewel-like strawberries. So they work really well if you want to grow them as sort of edging plants along a path or maybe around something larger in a pot. Um, they can handle some shade, um, sort of dappled shade. And you can get some really tasty varieties. There's one called White Soul, which produces white fruit and they taste like pineapples. They've got a really fragrant sort of strawberry pineapple taste to them. I know when I worked for Raymond Blanc, he talked about picking alpine strawberries in the forests in France. I've got a Ukrainian friend who also talks about the markets having you know huge quantities of these alpine strawberries. And they're great for kids. Kids love sort of you know, rustling through them and finding them. So those are some of the jobs I'll be cracking on with for my end of summer, early autumn sort of tasks. To get more expert advice for the coming months and all the veg advice you can imagine, pick up a copy of Anna's book, Grow Easy. Anna mentioned blight on tomatoes. I'm familiar with blight on potatoes as well. This fungus disease, well, it's not quite a fungus, it's more like an algae, so we call it a fungus-like organism, thrives in wet weather, and it usually starts in the west of Britain and moves east as the autumn advances. And I'm afraid that it overwinters on potatoes in the ground. If blight shows its ugly face right now, the thing to do is to cut off affected foliage as quickly as you can to slow down its spread and be ready to remove all the foliage from your spuds so that the blight spores are not washed into the soil and infect the tubers and cause them to rot in store. Then leave the potatoes until the skin is set and harvest them and put them away. Leave them on the surface of the ground for a couple of hours to dry and then store them somewhere dark and cool. And be sure to dig up every potato because the ones that are left in the ground can transmit the disease next year. Have you grown sweet corn this year? And better yet, have you harvested it? Many people who started sowing these tall plants back in the spring are now faced with a dilemma and have been asking me, when are they ripe and ready? So I headed down to my allotment a few days ago to pick some of my own crop and tell you all the information you'll need to know. Well, the British climate is famously unreliable and changeable. And this year we've caught one of the more extremes of heat and dryness. But on the plus side, there's been very, very little weeding to do. And also many crops are excellent quality, particularly things like French beans, for example, which have relished the heat. And the same is true as sweet corn. People are often perplexed to know when sweet corn is ready. Well, there's a simple answer to that. When the silks, that's the little hairy bits that come out of the cobs, which are actually the female flowers. When they turn brown and rustly, then the cob has been fertilised and the kernels inside will be swelling. At first, the kernels are watery, so when you push your thumbnail or the tip of your knife into one, watery liquid comes out and eventually they become doughy and a kind of paste comes out when you penetrate the kernel. But in the intermediate stage, the kernel is milky, the sap is milky, and that is when the cob is at its absolute perfection and is ready to pick. It's not just human beings who like sweet corn, wildlife like it too. We've grown sweet corn trials at Wisley where we've been looking for the best sweet corn varieties for gardeners and the local badgers have come in and trashed the lot and eaten all the cobs. So nowadays we have to grow our sweet corn trials surrounded by an electric fence. 
In my garden, it's birds that do the damage to sweet corn, and the simple remedy to that is to put a plastic bag over each cob once those silks go brown. My allotment neighbours claim that mice and squirrels and rats cause the damage, but this isn't the case. It may do on their allotments, but not on mine. Sweet corn can be heavily damaged by squirrels, but happily the squirrels in Surrey have not yet developed a taste for it. Most years I'm at my wit's end of what to do with all the produce in my garden, but in a dry year I can expect to lose 30% of the yield, so the amount I'm harvesting is greatly reduced this year. But I am glad I planted lots of beetroot. Beetroot has really relished these hot dry conditions and I have vast quantities of beetroot and I've been able to sow a few more as well for the autumn. So warning to my neighbours, if you see me approaching with a handful of beetroot, draw the curtains and pretend to be out. The summer months didn't just bring us sunshine, they also brought drought. And if you've been keeping an ear out for the news lately, people up and down the country have been talking about how it's not just their pot plants drying up, but also their wallets. Which is why we wanted to sit down with Alice Fowler, author of The Thrifty Gardener, and gardening columnist for The Guardian, to hear what sorts of things can still remain accessible to us all. I'm Alice Fowler and I am a gardener and a writer. I've written a number of books about gardening, mostly in small spaces and using the most of everything you have. So being thrifty about it, not wasting money, not wasting environmental resources, trying to pack a lot into a small space, I guess, is my USB. I think it's quite an anxious time for people. You know, we've come through a pandemic. We are now really confronted by this very complex issue of climate change. And, you know, on top of that, we have huge economic burdens running at us. And it is very easy in all of this to feel demoralized and anxious. And like, there's no obvious path through. And it's sort of somehow out of our hands. And yet it is in your hands. It's in your back garden or on your balcony or on your window ledge, like these small gestures are huge. So deciding to make compost will not only save you money and grow you better plants, but it will help the environment. Having a go at, say, trying house plants from citrus pips not only will save you money and make you feel better and will help out the environment. You know, each of these gestures does all the things that we're most worried about. And so there's no reason not to give it a go. So let's talk about making your own houseplants. The garden can be indoors and in your house and houseplants are a hugely wonderful way to garden. And to me, anybody who's looking after houseplants are just as much gardeners as people who have outside space. And I'm, you know, 100% behind this huge growth and love for houseplants, but they can be really spendy. Now, the lovely thing about that is that there's another side to houseplants. Many houseplants can be free. So, you know, you can grow fantastically good houseplants just from even your kind of kitchen. The avocado pip never grows old. If you have grown an avocado pip and then you suddenly have an avocado tree which is 11 foot high, that's like genuinely impressive and not impossible. So the avocado pip 
is definitely one to go for. But most citrus fruit will have pips which are viable. Just sow a ton of them and one or two will come up. It, you may be waiting a very long time to get lemons or grapefruits. But, you know, the joy is in the growth. The joy is in this process of tending and looking after. So it's not always about this kind of end goal of imagining you might have lemons someday. But I wish lemons upon you all if you try that experiment. Ginger can be sprouted, tomato pips. If you just slice up a tomato, you literally put a slice of tomato, like the kind of slice you might put in a hamburger, and you put it in the soil and you cover it with a bit more soil, or sprout into a wonderful little tomato forest. Now, again, they might not be the right variety to grow indoors by any means, and imagine you'll get tomatoes, but the point is, is that sometimes just this exuberant, new growth can be enough to kind of lift your mood. So there's all these kind of funny ways that you can grow your own plants for free. And they teach you so much. You know, even if they fail, which many of them will. My goodness, I've been there and killed most things at some point in my career. You learn an awful lot about, you know, like your light conditions, about watering, about air circulation, about when and how and pests move in and stuff like that. So every failure is actually a success because it's building this knowledge bank within you about what works and what doesn't. So I am a passionate composter. I feel like it's my religion. Every day, all of us produce stuff that can rot down and I cannot bear to see a single bit of it wasted. So I am that person who takes home <laughs> all the leftovers in a doggy bag to put in the compost because I believe every scrap should be saved. I mean, it's one of the biggest things that you can do right now if you want to help the environment is to compost. The compost bin is a fantastic wildlife habitat. It will have all sorts of things in it. So it has billions of microbes. It will have all sorts of insects and worms, but it may also end up housing something like bumblebee nest or a slow worm or frogs. So in itself, it's as good as having a wildlife pond. And on top of it all, it's going to make your garden resilient. So in all the problems that we've seen around associated with the heat wave, one of the most astonishing ways to make your garden resilient to all these things is to make better soil. And one of the best ways to make better soil is to make your own compost and to just spread that compost out onto your soil. It is the quickest way to build resilience into your garden. If your soil food web is healthy and diverse, and enriched, then your plant's roots will be healthy and diverse and enriched, and that's what makes plants capable of surviving extremes. And if you just can learn a few of the rules around compost bins, it's very easy to be a very good compost maker and not have smelly compost and to have something that is rich and wonderful and so beneficial to your garden. A compost bin needs to be a mixture of carbon and nitrogen. And nitrogen is like the kindling and carbon is the big logs. And you need the right balance to get it going. So too much nitrogen, too many grass clippings, too many kind of wet, soggy material, whether that's vegetable peelings or grass clippings is the one that usually sends it going off in the wrong direction, will mean that it goes slimy, it gets very hot and it burns out and it doesn't get going. The thing that keeps the compost going is the carbon and that's stuff like cardboard, newspaper, dead stems and, you know, dried stems, anything that's brown, twigs, leaves, that's the stuff that's going to keep the compost going. You want this ratio. And actually, if you just think about it like making a fire, put a little bit of nitrogen, now I need a lot of carbon. 
you will make perfect compost. It never fails if you think about it that way. You can throw an awful lot of money at gardening. I mean, you can throw obscene amounts of money at gardens. But the point is, you do not have to do that to make a beautiful garden. And if one thing of sort of 25 years plus of writing about gardens and visiting gardens has taught me is that some of the best gardens are not made on anything like that budget. They're made on a budget of £50 or £100 because the truth of the matter is a thing that makes a garden beautiful is love. And it is the time and attention that somebody puts into it. And that really, you know... As cliched as it, you know, as it is, love can't be bought. It really is about dedication. Thanks, Alice. My Allotment Society is full of people who are expert scroungers and improvisers. They find all sorts of stuff, whether it's uh, old posts, bits of iron, wire netting. I have to say the allotment does look a bit scruffy, but then, you know, it's not a show allotment. Gardening needn't be expensive. It's for everyone, and you can get by with a very limited amount of cash. So I hope to see you down the allotment soon. I'm quite sad as the evenings close in, and it's been a difficult summer with a lot of hard work with the watering can. But on the other hand, I do like autumn. This year I've got a bumper apple crop coming on. My potato crop looks very promising despite the drought, and there's lots of good leafy winter greens coming along as well. So there's lots to look forward to this autumn. And as the summer season draws to a close, so must this episode of the podcast. So from me, Guy Barter, see you next week. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawn mower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step, and you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer, or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.